Hello friends I'm your host Sujay and I welcome you to the 29th episode of the Meet Stargazers podcast Our guest today is an astronomer who began his career at the Kodak Research Laboratory but then turned to journalism working on a wide variety of magazines from photography to car maintenance and children's history He's the author of several astronomy books including Complete Guide to Stargazing 101 objects to spot in the night sky and stargazing with a telescope he has made numerous appearances as an astronomy expert on sky news bbc breakfast bbc news channel and many other television and radio programs he is also regularly found on the high seas giving lectures aboard cruise liners and planetarium talks on the queen mary 2 He is vice president of the Society for Popular Astronomy. Today he is going to talk to us about the Perseid meteor shower. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming Robin Skagel. Robin, thanks for taking the time to speak to us and I'm excited to talk to you about the Perseid meteor shower. Yes, it's something I'm looking forward to as well. Good morning. What brought you to astronomy and when did you get started? It started oh many years ago back in the 1960s I tell you what it was and I think this is something that excites a lot of people uh, I went to the seaside town of Folkestone on holiday with my parents on the south coast of England and in the evening over the water there were two what looked like bright stars uh, just hanging over the English channel quite low down and there was one of those seaside telescopes on the sea fry on the sea prom there and you had to put a little coin in the slot and you could look at them in close up a magnification of about 20 times 25 something like that and i could see straight away that they were jupiter and saturn and this is what really triggered off my interest i think i'd always been interested people are either interested in something or they are not and they know from a very early age the sort of things they are interested in and i think astronomy was always one of my interests but seeing those two planets really triggered it off and interestingly jupiter and saturn are in the evening sky at the moment as well a little bit farther apart than when i saw them those years ago they come close together every 20 years and 2020 was one of those years when they were close together and um when i saw them it was 1963 and uh, so it was a similar occurrence as well so that's what started me off and i've gone on Uh, my whole lifetime has has been one of interest in astronomy thanks for sharing your story with us one of the highlights of the astronomical year is the annual perseid meteor shower which reaches a strong maximum on august the 12th or 13th depending on the year what will we see on that night if you look up at the sky um, more or less at any time as soon as it gets dark and in most parts of the world as well you'll see an increased number of shooting stars uh, i'm not saying to say that they will be pouring out of the sky like uh, like snowflakes as sometimes you get the impression but there will certainly be an enhanced number and these are what we call the perseid meteors meteors are the same thing as shooting stars and it will look as if occasionally there is a uh, people called them shooting stars because it looked as if a star had suddenly become loose from the sky and plunged to the ground and uh, left a a trail of uh, a trail of light in the sky that's what we call the shooting star and as and as you say on the 12th or 13th and this year in 2021 it will be thursday the 12th is the maximum uh, date and that will be an increased number of them what causes the perseid meteor shower and where do the perseids come from the perseid meteors like all these meteor showers are caused by a stream of particles of we'll say space dust uh, and i can come on to it later exactly what it is which is in orbit around the sun and on this particular date the earth encounters this stream of space dust and as it does so the the collision rate with these particles is actually quite high it's in the order of many kilometers a second and so the tiny particles and they are tiny they are really literally only about the size of 
grains of instant coffee or something like that. People say sand, but um, I think they're more crumbly than sand. They are they are not really solid particles. They are just flakes of material, and as we encounter them, they they hit the upper atmosphere at a great speed, as I say, kilometers per second. And in this case, they they burn up in the Earth's atmosphere. They they never actually reach the ground. If we are going to a a meteor shower, as as these are, uh, they they never actually reach the ground. They just burn up in the atmosphere, uh, about eighty kilometers up, and that's what we see as a shooting star. It is uh, not actually a, a burning trail. It is what's happening is that the particle heats up and ionizes the air around it. So you get a, a column of air, probably only a, a, a meter or so across, caused by this particle vaporizing. And so it's not so much the hot body that you see as the glowing air around it, as if very briefly the air gets, the particles of air get ionized. Now I said it was 80 kilometers up. And you think, well, hang on, that's above the atmosphere. Yes, it's above the atmosphere that we can breathe, but the atmosphere goes on uh, for a, a considerable distance. And 80 kilometers up around that uh, level is where we see all these weird atmospheric phenomena, like uh, as indeed shooting stars, and the aurora, and things called noctilucent clouds, which we see in the summer months in, around the poles. All these happen in the rarefied upper atmosphere. Where to look in the sky to see the Perseid meteor shower? Anywhere in the sky, you can see the Perseid meteors, as long as they are active at the time. And the fact is that we call them Perseids because they appear to come from the direction of the constellation of Perseus. And that doesn't mean to say you have to look actually at Perseus, because they are simply coming from that direction, but they can appear anywhere in the sky as long as Perseus is above your horizon. Now, come on later to where you, you might expect it to, uh, to to be visible. Perseus is rising, well, all over the world, actually. It doesn't matter where you are, in the eastern part of the sky at this time of year. So you would see meteors appearing to radiate from the eastern part of the sky. And... Uh, the, the way to tell if it's a Perseid meteor or just a, a random shooting star, which you could get at any other time of year, is you've got to trace the path back. And if it comes from that constellation of Perseus, then it is a Perseid meteor. Now, as I say, you can see meteors at any time. You could be in the, looking up at the sky in at any other time of year, and the chances are that you may see a shooting star. And these are what we call sporadic meteors, and they are just part of the sort of background noise, if you like, of what happens if you look at the sky, and they can occur at any time. But the number of those is quite small, maybe just a, a, a five or so every every hour under ideal conditions. Quite often you don't see one, but they are surprisingly common if you do watch the sky and suddenly there's a brief flash of light. And what was that? Oh, it was a, it was a meteor shooting star. But when the Perseids are active and we're plowing through this stream of particles, we see more in the uh, per hour than we would do normally. What is the best time to see the Perseid meteor shower? And when do the Perseids peak? The best time to watch is um, as you can start watching as soon as the radiant is above your horizon, but as it rises, the number of meteors will increase. And this means that the best time to watch is probably in the early hours of the morning. So as the, although the peak is about midnight, the actual number will increase as the, as the, uh, as the night carries on. And you usually find that Although the numbers are quite good, even as you start watching, and you will see quite a few, maybe one every uh, two, two or three a, a minute if you're lucky, but more often you can look for a long time and not see one, but keep at it. But as you continue watching, you will find that the number of meteors per hour starts to increase, and it's at its maximum just, certainly in the UK and the Northern Europe area, uh, just as the skies are starting to get light, which 
from uh, from northern Europe, they do quite early in the morning, about sort of four in the morning. You can't really observe much beyond that. The skies are getting far too light. So you're you're in for the long haul if you can make it. Uh, watch for as long as possible, and, tr- and bear in mind you're going to have to try and stay up as long as possible during the night. Don't give up after ten minutes. Don't give up after um, after half an hour if you haven't seen one. They do tend to come in. Um, they they are completely random, and that's it's a bit like uh, waiting for anything. Humans have got a very bad idea of what random means. They think it means um, evenly spaced. And if you ask people to put dots on a, a random dots on a bit of paper, they will probably space them out quite evenly. But in fact, uh, if if you look at a lot of random patterns, you will get little clusters. And that's what happens with meteors as well. You will get two or three occurring in a short space of time. Then there might be a 10 minute gap when you don't see any at all. So the, the, the don't be discouraged. Keep observing for as long as possible and try and observe in the early hours of the morning if you can. Because the cloud of particles is quite wide, it means that it takes the Earth quite a long time to actually progress through it. And this means that Perseid meteors can be seen from as early as uh, mid-July through to probably the end of August. And the the actual peak, although it is on the 12th, 13th, and that is when people tend to observe because they know that the numbers are going to be greatest, the actual peak is quite a wide peak and it is between about the 9th to the 14th of August. Uh, So... Don't only observe on the night of maximum. If it looks like it's going to be cloudy in a couple of days' time, don't just give up on it. Observe on the nights either side as well, and you can see meteors. And even um, even around um, the, the time this podcast appears, there could be Perseid meteors starting to appear in the sky. And so if you see a shooting star that appears to come from the direction of Perseus, then then that's it. To find out the direction of Perseus, I think you're going to have to look at uh, the easiest way these days is one of those apps you get on your phone. Most people have got them if they're interested in astronomy and you can find the constellation of Perseus. If you can see the constellation of Cassiopeia, which is from the Northern Hemisphere, is very prominent. It's the W shape. Uh, Perseus follows it through the sky. So look for Cassiopeia and Perseus is to its uh, to its left as seen when looking north. So that's how you find where Perseus is. And the actual radiant point is just above the, uh, not far from the star, the brightest star in Perseus, the star Murfak. And that is where, if you were, if you could imagine the cloud of particles and you were seeing them in space, you could, you would look at them and there would be a huge cloud centered on, on Murfak. It does move actually slightly uh, from night to night, but that's around the place to look. You can't be too precise about it. It is a cloud and not a direct, not an actual point. So it's just centered on that spot. Where can I see the Perseid meteor shower? And are the Perseids visible in the Southern Hemisphere? People often ask, where is the best place to observe the Perseid meteors from? And they think there must be some, some preferred location. The fact is, you can go outside wherever you live as long as the sky is dark. And that's really the the critical thing, making sure you have a good dark sky because it doesn't matter if you're in a, a city park with a fairly good horizon uh, or in out in the country. If you can only see a small part of the sky, you're only going to see a small number of the meteors that are visible. So get outside, look and see as much of the sky as you can. As I said, the meteors can appear in any part of the sky, so you don't have to look directly at Perseus. In fact, it's a good idea not to look directly at Perseus. The reason being that the meteors in Perseus, if, you, if you're if you imagining them coming away from, from the constellation, the trails are quite short where they're actually leaving. We're looking more or less into the stream of particles and that the trails are quite short. If you're looking at um, an angle to where Perseus is in the sky, then the trails are going to be longer and they're therefore going to be more noticeable and possibly brighter as well. 
And if you look low down on the horizon, then um, you're you're looking through a great thickness of atmosphere. And although there might be more meteors in the line of sight, a lot of them will be dimmed by the absorption of the atmosphere. So there is a recommended direction to look uh, for any meteor shower. And it's about, um, uh, in, in round figures, about 45 degrees away from the radiant and at about 45 degrees altitude in the sky or rather elevation in the sky. So look in mid sky or you can look overhead if you want to cover the whole of the heavens at once. And uh, but don't look directly at the meteor uh, meteors themselves. If you're in the northern hemisphere or, or indeed the southern um, look if in the northern hemisphere, look towards Polaris, the North Pole Star. That's as perfectly good direction to look in it's it's roughly um uh or, or in fact um may, maybe a, a bit to the to the right of that uh but perseus is rising uh in, in the from the northern hemisphere where let's face it majority of people are going to be observing in europe and north america and uh the the, the, the pole star is a good place to look because it satisfies those criteria but the main thing is to get out and look you won't see them if you don't see uh, a huge amount of sky at once and just go out there and look. It's a good idea, incidentally, if you've got friends who are interested, uh, what, a lot, what a lot of people do is to have a group meteor observing session and they sit around in a sort of pattern looking at the whole of the sky. I've done this myself and it's actually quite fun because it is a group observing um, uh, which, which you can do without needing to have a telescope or whatever. You just lie back there, look up at the sky it's your own little section of sky and you can chat among yourselves. And the good thing is that you will find that some people will see meteors, which others don't. So if you're a lone observer trying to catch meteors um, and see them in the sky, you may see you, you'll probably miss a lot of them. But if you whole group have a whole group of people, then suddenly someone screams out, oh, meteor. And you didn't see it, but you know that the activity is there. So there's a good reason for getting together with some pals going out into a, a nice dark sky area and just looking up and enjoying the sky how to watch the perseid meteor shower the best way to watch is to be as comfortable as possible bearing in mind that you're going to have to be there for the long haul you're going to have to be out there for some considerable time at night so make sure you're well settled down a lounger or uh, other kind of uh, deck chair or whatever is is a good way to observe it. Lying flat on your back is not a is not a recommended method because you tend to be observing just the the, the zenith of the sky. It's not necessarily a very comfortable way to observe. And what's more, you're going to be deep down on the on the grass or the the surroundings. It's best to be slightly above the ground because even in uh, even in Europe, and it's when it's summer, uh, the, the the nights can get quite cold. You can, it, it, okay, not cold as in uh, negative temperatures, but nevertheless, it can get quite chilly. And so what seemed like a, a lovely balmy summer's night when you start out, by the time it gets to two or three in the morning, you can get a bit chilly. So make sure you've got a blanket to hand. And what's more, something to lie on, because the dew tends to get through everything. And it's uh it's a method it's a matter of of keeping yourself comfortable don't start don't don't take any alcohol with you alcohol does dull your senses as maybe you know already but uh, you might think oh i need a a drink now but uh, that's that's best not to um just have a, a few snacks to hand that's often quite a bit of a treat as well because you think oh well i'll just keep on going for another half an hour then I can have a bar of chocolate or a couple of slices of something. That's uh, it's a good way of keeping yourself awake and alert. So try and stay alert for the rest of, for the whole time if possible. <laughs> That's quite a knack, and it's it's very easy to drop off while you're trying to watch the meteors. Make sure you can see as as much of the sky as you can if you're just by yourself. But um, don't don't try and observe away from any uh, buildings or trees. Don't worry too much about the direction you're observing if you are constrained by local surroundings. Not all of us live in a totally flat 
landscape. So it can be quite difficult to find your ideal observing position, particularly if you're maybe going out in the car somewhere to try and find a, an observing spot and finding some little secluded spot where people won't bother you and headlights of cars won't keep on shining you can be quite a challenge. Uh, but it depends on where you live. If you live in uh, some more remote parts, maybe there are plenty of areas where you can do that. But if you live near a city, then there are always people around uh, at any time of night. I'm, I'm always getting disturbed, actually, if I'm observing by, by gamekeepers who are out looking for poachers. And this happens quite a lot to me. Uh, once they get to know me, there's no problem. And police tend to be aware of people uh, skulking around behind bushes and trees and so on. And you often get uh, that sort of thing happening. But usually they are more interested than you would like because they say, oh, that's interesting. Can you show me some of the stars? They want to start chatting about it. You think, oh, go away. I just want to be left in peace. But it's not a good idea to tell them to push off. <laughs> it's one thing just to sit up and look at the Perseids, and that's what a lot of people just love to do, to see the meteors and the shooting stars and just enjoy the spectacle. And some of them can, can be quite spectacular. But it's also quite useful to science to actually make notes of what you observe. And the thing to do is just make a note. Simplest thing is just to make a, a note of how many meteors you see in, in a time interval. So you may divide your time up into 20 minute or half hour or hour long observing sessions and just make a note of the, the number of meteors you see in each time session. Uh, 20 minutes is a good sort of uh, average to, to do. Just make a note. Um, and that means having a paper and pen or pencil with you. It's actually easier to do that in the long run than to make a, a recording of what you say using a, a voice recorder or whatever, because the trouble with that is you've then got to go through it afterwards. And it takes as long to transcribe the recording as it took to observe in the first place. So if you've got five hours of recordings, you might get uh, find it a bit tedious to uh, to um, uh, to listen to it all. So the old-fashioned method is probably the best. Have a, a pad of paper. If it's going to get covered with dew, then maybe a pencil would work better. A, a good hard pencil, a good soft pencil that will write on anything is probably better than a, a ballpoint pen. Which uh, you, you, it, it, just bear in mind that things get a bit can get a bit dew covered wherever you are, unless you're maybe out in some very dry desert but uh just keep a note from time to time of the time the number of meteors seen an actual fully fledged meteor observation consists of all the details that you might want to note down and meteor observers do do this and um there are full details on how to observe meteors on the society for popular astronomy's website that's popastro.com and if you go to observing sections and then meteors, there's a very detailed guide on observing meteors. And it tells you the things to note down, such as, well, time of occurrence. And instead of just observing over a, a period of 20 minutes and numbering the, uh, the finding the number that you see, you actually note, note down the time it appeared. It's brightness compared with stars and stars, as you probably know, are divided into the brightnesses are divided into magnitudes. And that is a is simplest uh, way to think of it is it's a bit like the the ranking of winners in a race. The the very best is number one, and the maybe the the the, the last the, the 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 runner up is number six. And it's like that with magnitudes of stars. The very brightest were called magnitude one by the Greeks and the ancient Greeks, and the faintest was called magnitude six. And we've now extended that so that. Um, it fits in better with the very wide range of brightnesses which we see. And so that goes to minus numbers as well. But uh, on the magnitude scale, something like Jupiter, which is in the sky at the moment, is magnitude minus two. And then the bright star Vega, which is pretty well overhead, is magnitude zero. This is as seen from the northern sky. And the very brightest stars are about magnitude zero or maybe minus one. And then Stars of the 
a great bear or the Southern Cross, depending on which hemisphere you're in, are about magnitude uh, one or two, and Cassiopeia about magnitude two. And then the fainter ones that you can see, uh, probably magnitude three or four. You don't usually see meteors fainter than about magnitude three or four because they are so fleeting, you don't really spot them. So you note down the magnitude of the meteor just compared with stars. And you also note if it's if there was a train, a trail behind the meteor. And this is of, of interest to just to compare the, the notes of uh, different observers and see what they say. And also where it came from, whether it was a Perseid or a sporadic. And the sporadic ones, as I say, are those that don't come from Perseus. There are other showers, minor showers, active as well as the Perseids, uh, such as the, um, the, uh, the, there are the, uh, or, um, such as the Aquarius, Aquarids, which, uh, appear, come from Aquarius. Uh, but that's a different part of the sky. So dedicated meteor observers will try and note those as well. But if you're just observing for fun, it's a good idea to note the number of meteors you'll see in, in a particular time. And uh, that can be great fun to do. And so if you're going to note things down, take a, a torch as well, a, a flashlight. Uh, make sure it has it's covered with red paper or uh, you, you have a red, say, cycling torch. The reason being that red light affects your eyesight very much less than white light, uh, particularly with LEDs. They've got a lot of blue in them. And blue is very bad for your night vision. So get yourself well dark adapted and use a red light to make your notes and you're then a fully fledged meteor observer. Thank you, Robin. What is a meteor and a meteor shower? Well, a meteor shower is when, as, as we've discussed, uh, the Earth encounters a stream of particles. Now, where do these particles come from? The answer is they come from comets. And comets uh, are very strange creatures. They, they, they start out their lives way out in the solar system. They are chunks of ice and dust that formed at the same time as the early solar system, literally four and a half billion years ago. And they've been lying out in the outer reaches of the solar system for all that time. Occasionally, one of them will be diverted towards the, towards the inner part of the solar system. And that's when we see it as a comet. We can't see those comets when they are far out. They are chunks of ice and dust. We had had a good look at a few of these things. A lot of people will remember and will have heard of Halley's Comet, which when it came close to the sun in 1986, um, several spacecraft were sent to observe it. And the European Space Agency spacecraft Giotto took some wonderful photographs of it. And it turned out to be a fragment of, I say a fragment, a chunk of, of ice, uh, a, a, an icy body, literally about um, I think it was about 10 or 15 kilometers long. Um, and it, it wasn't a, a spherical body. It was, it was more elongated. And it, it, that, that is our best, our first and probably the best view we've had of a, an active comet nucleus. And so you think, well, something 10, 15 kilometers long, that's pretty jolly big, you know, compared with say a city. Uh, it, it is, it is more than just a fragment. But in terms of the size of the Earth, it is a tiny body. And yet this tiny body being made of ice, and I mean ice, it's, it's largely water ice, but there are a lot of other things mixed in there as well. Uh, different, uh, I think things like carbon monoxide, there are lots of things that can freeze and lots of gases that will freeze and are part of the icy body that com comprises a comet's nucleus. This, this body we call the nucleus. And there's lots of space dust in there as well. Material which has formed from the, what we call the, the, the solar cloud in, in some cases, the, the body which formed the sun and the planets. And the, a lot of material was left over and is still at the fringes of the solar system. So we are observing material which has been around 
since long before the Earth was born. And as it, uh, as a comet approaches the sun, as a comet approaches the sun, its material starts to get burned off and it can survive many passages around the sun. Halley's Comet, for example, goes around in um, a matter of 75, 76 years. And each time it loses a bit of material and some of its material, some of its gas and the dust that's embedded in it gets gets released. And this goes into orbit uh, in the same orbit as the as the comet. But because it's small material, it doesn't stay in that in that orbit all the time. It can spread out. I I I think of it. If you remember uh, those people who have seen steam trains going along, the the, uh, the smoke comes out of the funnel of the steam train, but then it spreads over a much wider area, and that's what happens in the case of of the dust from a comet. So it, the, the comet has a particular orbit, but the dust from it and the, the gas spreads out. It's the dust which we're talking about in terms of the, the shooting stars. That's the dust, the fragments of dust that have been, have been embedded in the comet for billions of years and have now been released. And they spread out very much wider than the original orbit of the comet. In the case of the Perseid meteors, the comet we're talking about is Comet Swift-Tuttle. And this is one that appeared, uh, was seen many years ago, and we, we don't see much of it these days. But it's in an orbit which went quite close to the Earth, and the material from it has spread out over the centuries of repeated passes in its orbit around the sun, and it's spread out over a much wider area. So though the, although there is no risk of us actually hitting the comet, there is uh, every year we do pass through the wider stream of dust particles that has come off the nucleus of the comet, and that that spread of uh, particles is is many uh, hundreds of thousands of miles wide now, or kilometres wide. So that's why we encounter encounter it every year. We're crossing the orbit of uh, the wider part of the orbit of the comet every year. Now, this, these dust particles are really tiny. As I said earlier on, they're more like um, flakes of instant coffee than they are, or granules, if you like, than they are particles of sand. They are the same sort of size as that. They are really tiny, but um, they are still going to be big enough to burn up in the atmosphere. One thing people worry about, perhaps, is that, and I've heard people say this, that they saw they've been watching a, a strong meteor shower, and they say, and one hit the ground. I heard it hit the ground not far away. And in fact, that, that was, I don't know, a cat jumping off a dustbin or something like that. Uh, it wasn't actually a, party or a particle of dust actually hitting the ground. It was, um, th these things are so small, they all burn up in the, in the atmosphere, and they have no threat to us whatsoever, which doesn't mean to say that objects can't hit the Earth from space. Obviously, they do. We've all heard of them. The most famous recent one being um, uh, worldwide being the Chelyabinsk meteor, which a few years ago actually hit the ground and fragments were recovered and caused a lot of devastation through a sonic boom in the, in, in the part of Siberia where it hit. But you can watch the Perseids without worry that one of them will hit you and they, uh, they are all going to burn up high up in the atmosphere. Sometimes I see a meteor and it appears to leave a trail for a few seconds. Could you please explain to us what's happening there? What happens is that a meteor, as I said earlier, you're not just looking at the glowing point of light. That would be absolutely tiny and you, you would never see it 80 kilometers away, just a, a, a grain of material glowing. What you're seeing is a column of air caused by the meteor ionizing uh, the, the atmosphere, uh, knocking electrons off the at atoms and the molecules, and it, the, the, the column of air glows. It is probably only a, a, a meter or so, a meter or so in uh, diameter, but it's many kilometers long as the thing plunges, plunges through its fiery depth, death, and uh, that's what you'll see. Now, the column of air can actually stay glowing for a considerable time, usually no more than a fraction of a second, but occasionally 
it will last two or three seconds if it was a particularly large particle. And sometimes the this column of, uh, of ionized air actually stays glowing for a very long time and it, it can persist for several minutes. And you actually see the column start to move through the against the background of the stars and get distorted through upper atmosphere winds, which is something, of course, that we don't normally think of or encounter. And so what started out as a straight trail suddenly gets a, uh, will start to develop a bend in it. And you get strange sort of zigzag trail up in the sky as a result of high altitude winds blowing the trail of the ionized column of glowing air particles. So that's quite a, a fascinating thing to see. Happens for quite rarely, but it does happen. What is the difference between a meteoroid with a D, a meteor with an OR, and a meteorite with a TE? Right, this is something that a lot of people get wrong. Uh, a meteor is the shooting star, the transient thing that we see coming down from the sky. That is a meteor or a shooting star. A meteoroid is the body itself in space and space is full of these meteoroids the whole of the solar system is full of meteoroids of different sizes some of them are quite large and and may not come from comets but from asteroids those are the ones incidentally that usually plunge to earth and can be sometimes recovered from the the ground where there's a uh, where they've actually got survived their passage but if a meteor body does actually survive all the way down to the ground and become something which you can pick up. Then we refer to it as a meteorite. And if you want to remember the difference, think of all those geological specimens and fossils, ammonites, bellumnites, or um, there the, are the, the, any number of hematite. All these geological specimens have ite at the end. So that helps you to remember that when you can pick it up from the ground, it becomes an ite. When it's in space, it's an oid, and when it's coming down, it's a meteor with no nothing on the end of it. What is a fireball? I mentioned that you can get some of these bodies coming in space, which are really quite large, usually from the asteroid belt rather than from the debris from comets. Now, if it's considerably larger than the sort of grain of instant coffee that I've been talking about, uh, that sort of size, then it can um, can shine very bright as it comes in through the Earth's atmosphere. And if it shines brighter than that, about magnitude minus five, where um, on the astronomical scale, the, the, the no planet such as Venus ever gets brighter than magnitude minus four, if it gets brighter than, about, than, than any of those bodies, um, about minus five, I think, is the, the limit. Then it becomes known as a fireball. These things often are very slow moving through the Earth's atmosphere, and you can actually watch them as they they progress. And they are sometimes visible even during daylight, and that is what's known as a fireball. Sometimes they do they do burn up. They are quite often um, just particularly large chunks of, of material which just burn up but sometimes they also are able to descend all the way they're big enough that they don't break up they do frag they do fragment as they come through the earth's atmosphere and they leave a shower of sparks maybe what look like sharks sparks are coming off the, uh, the the body as it as it descends and these are quite often the ones that result in a meteorite being picked up on the Earth's surface. Back in March 2021, there was such a fireball appeared in uh, over, over the southern part of the UK, which was observed very widely through a lot of security cameras and uh, actual uh, cameras that are set up every night to observe this sort of thing, and even doorbell video cameras where the output is recorded. And it was very widely observed, and that resulted. Uh, they, they, it was possible to put together the trails seen from a wide number of locations and predict 
where the body would have fallen, which turned out to be the village of Winchcombe in Gloucestershire in southern England. It was in uh, February 2020 that uh, a, that a, a group of people actually went out. They had special mission permission to break the COVID regulations and go out and search for bodies uh, that had fallen from the sky. And they found quite a few. One famous particle actually fell in someone's driveway. And because they were, they had heard about these, this uh, fireball appearing, they were, they didn't think it was just some, someone throwing a bit of old dirt onto their ground. And they alerted the, the and it was picked up. They, they were absolutely delighted to have a, a chunk of outer space rock on their, on their uh, driveway. And that piece of material is now on display in the Natural History Museum in London. And it was a, a, a really good find. These things actually plunge to earth far more often than people recognize, uh, than people realize. And by having these networks of meteor cameras and by alerting people to fireballs, we are now able to detect far more than we ever did before. Cameras are so widespread. And there are whole networks in many countries uh, to, to pick up these things. But we only ever find a small fraction of those that actually hit the Earth. The Earth is actually hit by, it's estimated, something like 80,000 tonnes of space material every year. And you'd think that you, you would you would hardly walk out for being hit on the head by something falling from the sky. But the fact is that the Earth is such a large area. Most of it is water. So a lot of these never go observed and they actually hit the water. And even in Winchcombe, where these things fell, um, very nobody noticed them actually at the time of falling, which was uh, happened to be during the night. They could have equally happened during the day. There is nothing to say that uh, these bodies have to happen at night. They can happen during the day. And this has happened in many places uh, that uh, people people suddenly find that there's a, um, there's a sort of swish and a bang and something drops nearby. <clears throat> Sometimes it's... <clears throat> <clears throat> sometimes it's nothing more than a, a chunk fallen off a, a wheel of a plane or something like that. But occasionally it is actually a meteorite. And these are of great interest to scientists to pick up these bits of material. But amazingly, nobody has ever been killed within historic, historical records of by a meteorite falling from space. So despite the fact that it's something like 80,000 tons falls to earth each year. A lot of it just falls harmlessly in fields or mostly in the ocean. And only a bit of it whole is ever seen to fall or observed to fall. I remember back in the, um, back in, I think it was in the seventies in the UK, uh, a chap was gardening in his allotment and there was a sort of uh, rustling in the, in the, in the beans behind him. And he, he looked and found a, a bit of material that had actually dropped. This is quite rare. And most of the time, no one ever gets hurt or, or even property damaged by, by meteors. I believe in 1910, a dog was killed by a meteorite. But that is, as far as it goes, in the last century, nobody has actually, <laughs> nothing has ever been killed by a meteorite falling. What is the radiant of a meteor shower. A good analogy to the radiant of a meteor shower is to think of driving along. Uh, now, okay, some of your viewers, uh, some of your listeners may not be familiar with driving through snow, but those of us in Northern Europe are very familiar with it in the winter months. Uh, just imagine that you're driving into a snowstorm and all the snow particles as you're going into it, although you know they are dropping from, uh, from, from the, uh, from the sky, the motion of your car through the snow makes them appear to come from a point way just right in front of the car. And the same would happen to raindrops if you could see it. And so the point at which they appear to be coming is, in the case of your car, is just due to the motion of your car. In the case of a meteor shower, it's due to the earth of the motion of the earth combined with that of the meteor bodies. And 
So they appear to come from a point in space, although they are actually coming along parallel paths in the atmosphere, just as in the case of the snow snowflakes, they are not actually coming from a point in, in, in front of you. It just appears that way. Another analogy is to think of uh, railway lines stretching away into the distance or um, a road, if you were looking at a straight road, the edges of the road or the railway lines would appear to point meet at a point in the distance, even though they you know that they are parallel. And that is what we call the radiant, the point at which they, the vanishing point at which they appear in the sky. What is the ZHR of a meteor shower? Right. People often get tangled up with this business of the hourly rate, particularly the press, the media. They see what is called the ZHR, the zenithal hourly rate of a meteor shower. And in the case of the Perseids, it could be as high as 120. And so they think, they say in their in their reports, as many as 120 meteors per hour could be seen. You think, oh, great, that's to a minute. Oh, that'll be wonderful. But the zenithal hourly rate is a purely theoretical rate, which is devised so as to compare different meteor showers. And it is computed from the number that people see and then um, corrected for assuming that the radiant was at the zenith and that the conditions were perfect. Now, if the radiant is actually only 20 degrees above your horizon, you're only going to be obviously going to see a fraction of the numbers of number of meteors that actually occur. And in the case of the Perseid, Perseids, it's not possible for anyone during de- during the hours of nighttime to have, no, no matter where they are on the Earth, to have the radiant directly above and uh, and the dark sky. So this never applies. So this is a theoretical figure. And it also includes all meteors. It also includes all meteors of all brightnesses. And you, you are unlikely to see the very fainter ones in most cases. You probably wouldn't notice them. So it is the radiant, the, the, the number of meteors corrected for a single observer looking at the sky, perfectly attentive, fully awake, and with the radiant in the zenith and the maximum number of meteors happening at that moment. This never applies. So the figure of, say, 100 or 120 that you you see has to be corrected for your own personal circumstances, the fact that your skies aren't perfect, and a more realistic figure, if you if you say 100 meteors per hour, is probably even under the best conditions. You can probably cut that by a factor of two. So you might see 50 an hour if you had really good skies and you hadn't fallen asleep and all that sort of thing and you had a perfectly clear horizon. If other factors of, of apply, then cut that in half again, and you might see 25 an hour. And you think, well, that's not bad. That's one every two and a half minutes or so. But remember that I said that meteors come at random. And whereas you can, you might see one or one following another, and you think, crikey, they're, they're really pelting down now. Then you might get a gap of, 10 or 20 minutes when nothing appears, and particularly if you're not being attentive or whatever. So take the published figures with a pinch of salt and cut them by a factor of four, and don't raise your expectations too much, and you won't be disappointed. However, it's still great to go out there, and when you do get a good shower of, of, of a good display of Perseid meteors, you can easily see one every two or three minutes, and as you lie there, uh, it's it's a great sport to wait for them if you can stay awake. Much better than fishing, I'm sure. A lot of fisher, fisher folk have been out there uh, and spent the whole day with their rod dangling in the water and nothing's happened at all. With the meteors, it's usually a lot more active than that, and you've got a great free spectacle up in the sky. Something about the the, the fact that it's a natural display which really is exciting because if you want spectacle, go to a firework display and you'll see something that's far more spectacular up up in the sky. But the free spectacle, the natural spectacle of a meteor shower is really fun because you know that these are natural objects. It's 
It's a totally, um, it's a totally uh, natural phenomenon. And that is what's so great about it. And no, <laughs> no chemicals were produced in the formation of these, these objects. They're, they're totally ecological and, and, and toxin free. So observe the meteors with, with great pleasure. Where can our listeners find you online? As I am Vice President of the Society for Popular Astronomy, uh, the best place to find a lot of information about astronomy, a lot of which I put up, is to go to the Society for Popular Astronomy website, popastro.com, and you can access it, access it from wherever you are. And there's a huge amount of material there, free of charge. And if um, the, the aims of the, the Society for Popular Astronomy are very similar to those of your podcast. It's for beginners to astronomy. We do have uh, worldwide subscriptions. It's mostly in the UK, but we have worldwide subscriptions as well. So we have a magazine that comes out uh, six times a year, which currently I am the editor of. I'm also personally an, an author of several books on astronomy. Um, I'm now not writing any more. So these are, you might find that these are out of print, but they are very good books nevertheless. <laughs> and there was uh, one I'm quite pleased with called Night Sky Atlas, which has got a good uh, view of the night sky. Another one, sky, Stargazing with Your Telescope, which is quite fun. You can find out about my books at stargazing.org.uk. And there's a list of those. And you might even find links to, to them on Amazon as well. Thank you, Robin, for this fascinating discussion on the Perseid Meteor Shower. Friends, I hope you enjoyed this episode and found it useful. Robin has shared with us valuable information on observing the Perseid meteor shower. You can find useful links and resources in the show notes. Please share this podcast episode with one friend, colleague or family member who is interested in observing the night sky.